Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands and forests of eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our relationships to the rest of nature, on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Mi'kmaq people. We talk about ecology, conservation, forestry, and many interconnected issues. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions and ideas from many different people. Nothing presented here is intended as the final word. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. Welcome, Pat Wigan. I'm very glad that you joined me here today. Yeah, thank you. I was eager to hop on and, 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 and talk about things I care about. So. Great. Well, let's just set the stage a bit. Uh, just before I pressed record, <laughs> we were just commenting that we've uh, we've crossed paths at our local neighborhood pub, but tonight we are meeting in one of the rooms of my knotweed living room. The Japanese knotweed studio. That's it's, right. It's a wonderful space. <laughs> Joined here by your very uh, obedient and, and quiet quiet dog. Yeah, we'll see if that lasts. So, yeah, would you be able to just start off by telling us a bit about yourself and some of your background. Sure, yeah. Um, so yeah, my name is Pat Wigan. I, I'm i from Dartmouth. I was, I was born in Ontario, but I moved to Dartmouth when I was very young and more or less spent spent the majority of my youth there uh, with the exception of, of um, going to my cottage basically every summer until, until I went tree planting, which uh, kind of coincided with my undergraduate degree, just kind of paying my way through school. Uh, I went to Mount Allison just on the other side of the border. I, I got an environmental science degree um, uh, and a, you know, a minor in biology. So I, I was kind of, you know, I was kind of inspired by forest ecology and, and ecosystem dynamics there. Um, the, the, the forestry part of myself kind of came later, um, but the exposure happened just, just with tree planting for, for a company called e, uh, Apex Reforestation. Uh, and that was predominantly in the northern interior of British Columbia. So I did that for 12 years, and then I came home, and I got a job uh, as the executive director of the Federation of Nova Scotia Woodland Owners. So I did that for four years. Um, that was, you know, I, I, I really didn't have a huge understanding of the political nature of Nova Scotia forestry, of, of how forest management works, uh, in, 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 in this province particularly. Um, but maybe, I, maybe I should backtrack and say that in between, in between those things, I did go to the, the Maritime College of Forest Technology and I got a forest tech diploma in Fredericton. So I did that in 2017 and, and I, I, I kept planting. So I was managing, you know, I didn't, I didn't plant for the last seven years of my, of my career. I, um, uh, either ran crews or, or, or ran camps. So camps of uh, 80 to 120 people, and we'd manage multi-million, multi-million tree contracts and engage with, with big industry. And it was kind of my big exposure to, to the forest sector and kind of the vastness of forest industry, which is a scale that is unfathomable to, to people here in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, can, you can throw Nova Scotia in British Columbia and lose it. So, uh, but anyway, I, I kind of got tired of living out, living out of a bag and... Uh, and I and I took a job in the nonprofit sector here in Nova Scotia. I uh, I did that from 2019 to 2023. So yeah, I was the ED of the Federation of Nova Scotia Woodland Owners, and 
we did a mixed bag of things. We managed land under um, under an internationally recognized certificate program called the Forest Stewardship Council. Um, I'm sure you've probably seen some of your mail that has has that corporate stamp of, with a tree and an FSC on it, and it mm-hmm. basically just says that that wood product was attained viable X amount of standards from from whatever woodlot that it came from. Uh, probably not Nova Scotia. It was probably an international product if you got if you got a paper product, which is kind of a shame. Um, but anyway, uh, the federation, yeah, we 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 manage woodlots. We engage with contractors. Um, but more importantly, we, we, we served as a, a political voice when it was needed um, to kind of represent the small private sector. So, so woodlands that were under 500 hectares in size are considered small private. Uh, I know that sounds like a that huge woodlot. That sounds huge, yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, 1,200 acres or something like that. So, so how many land or what percentage of landowners in Nova Scotia fall under, into that like, so-called small acreage category do you you know well if you look at the you know if you look at the forested land base of nova scotia i think 70 odd percent is privately owned but i think maybe nine to eleven percent is large industrial either large landowners or industrial freehold which would be mill owned okay uh and then the rest is private so you know 60 odd percent 60 plus percent is all small private and uh, and then you know under ten percent would be federally owned. Okay, so you're representing the majority of yeah. The forest, it, it's really. a, it's a provincial body, um, it's provincially funded, federally funded, um, but yeah, we re- we represent the mom and pop forest stewards that, um, you know, predominantly advocate for um, low impact. Um, it's a funny cliche to say sustainable nowadays, but, um, you know, ecosystem-driven forestry is what I like to say now. Okay. Um, working in the forest for the forest and, and not for, um, you know, markets that are out of our control. So you're saying working in the forest for the forest just because sustainab- the word sustainable is so overused and there's greenwashing and that sort of thing? Is totally, that, yeah. You want to just know, be clear about what it means? Exactly, yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, trying trying best to replicate what the forest is going to do in a slightly accelerated way to appease human uh, existence, I guess. Um, stand improvement forestry, um, capturing mortality of, of trees, so basically capturing them at their ecological peak, their merchantable peak, um, their carbon storing peak. They, they kind of all overlap a bit um, and, and, and kind of paving the way for for new for new growth or you know shaded growth that is ready to be released into the into the overstory um and you know never never promoting um you know clear cutting or or the removal of forest ecosystems um that kind of uh silviculture or harvesting practice is never called for in in this kind of climate although um in canada some some forests do, you know, the silviculture specs of the ecosystem do call for that. But this is such a temperate climate uh, where natural regeneration is very robust. We have a very, um, you know, diverse species range uh, of deciduous and softwood trees and shrubbery and, you know, bryophytes and moss and, and herbaceous plants um, that we don't really see 
the the natural landscape cater to an overstory removal and then a full kind of even age stand reinitiation kind of happen. It's always kind of uneven, multi-cohort, a bit chaotic looking. Um, so that's kind of what we try to emulate um, when we when we practice forest management. Um, something you said reminded me that I've heard folks from the forest industry say that the younger trees will capture carbon better, so we should might as well just cut them when they're young. And I imagine that has something to do with this the species. So at some point, you know, it, 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 if you think about a a human, our our cells at some point at some part of our life are regenerating faster than they are dying and then at another part of it they're they're dying at a at a faster rate than they're regenerating that happens with trees as well so uh, when they're dying they're giving off carbon dioxide and not being able to compensate for it and and you know they're not increasing in growth and vigor you know that said they are contributing to soil health and rotten decay is really important for ecosystems um, it's just at some point where human values are, are considered uh, and carbon storing um, large dimensional lumber um, that can be you know stored in houses and as building supplies and or solid wood products of any kind I should say um, you know those are things to consider when you're when you're managing a forest so um, you know it, it, I like to use the, the term capturing mortality because you, you don't want to catch something when it's past its prime um, unless, unless there is a clear and obvious ecological benefit that, uh, that it's serving. You know, if it's a, if it's a wildlife tree, if you see some cavities there that, that, uh, you know, were created by a bird and now occupied by a different critter, um, you know, obviously you wouldn't want to cut that down anyway, but, uh, or if it's, you know, housing unique fungus or lichen that, that's, uh, you know, fixing nitrogen and providing nitrogen for the soil things like that. Mm-hmm. So can you give us an idea of like the typical age range of like of what you're trying you're watching for that optimal time? That is totally species dependent for mm-hmm. sure. Um, so if, well we're in Lunenburg County so I might as well talk about balsam fir which is you know it's, we're in Christmas tree capital of the of the world so I might as well talk about it. Mm-hmm. Balsam fir um like every every other tree is a carbon storing has carbon storing potential but um typically in an in in a standard ecosystem where we are um kind of a northern climate but the you know the southernmost uh like its southernmost range um right. which is increasingly going further and further north yeah. um as we see more effects due to climate change right um Cars driving by in the Nightwood studio here. <laughs> yeah. The uh, other thing I should mention about the studio, oh, she stopped now, but uh, if you hear this crunching sound, that is the dog chewing on a stick. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, balsam fir, you know, typically has, it's surprising. You know, it lives usually, like, you occasionally see a balsam fir that can live to 100 years, but typically it's about 45 to 60 years old. Okay. Uh, so, sometimes when you're, when you're cruising a woodlot, you'll look at trees and you'll, you assess what's called the live crown ratio, and basically, if the live crown, which is either the leaf-bearing part of the tree or the needle-bearing bearing part of the tree, which is just the crown, mm-hmm. if if it occupies more than a third of of the length of the tree or the height of the tree, then it still has um, carbon storing potential, um, growth potential, diameter 
like ability oh. to to increase in diameter and so that's um, just a general rule that's it's kind of a general rule of thumb um huh. yeah it's kind of, it's you know it's it I, I wouldn't say it's like it's it's etched in stone in the forestry playbook but if if you are assessing like a take or leave um and if you have the opportunity to go back in in 10 years time and take it mm-hmm. then you'd probably leave it okay. when 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 you're there like in terms of just in terms of on the fly decision making you know, if you just want to size up a tree and you say, okay. But, you know, you're always looking at, at the forest in the context of of what else is around. So, you know, is there something else? Is there something else that could benefit from a bit more sunlight? Uh, and this this specific tree is, you know, kind of in its way. And if you come back in 10 years, it might be too late. So you might as well just take it now. Um, you know, you might be helping neighboring trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, grow and develop and increase in vigor. So there's, yeah, it's a complex thing, and there's so much to consider. It sounds like totally, yeah. And and then so you, so you gave us an example of something on the the lower end, maybe of longevity. So what would be an example on the other side? Um, well, I mean, we're on the south shore, so I guess I might as well stick with uh, the species that are here. Um, hemlock, yeah, eastern hemlock. Okay. So hemlock, you know. I think actually recently, um, someone, someone maybe from the college or Dalhousie or somewhere just, just aged a hemlock at 600 years old hmm. it's right, right here in the province, which is, you know, that's pretty spectacular. It's, it's no, it's no, it's no, you know, thousand year old tree that you'd see on the other side of the country, but, um, it's still significant. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. I was just at, um, Azadulisk, which yeah. formerly yeah. Windhorse Farm and, uh, they have recently, somewhat recently anyway, in the last few years, I think, done a core sample on the sugar maple. That Have you yeah, seen that? That they the, call it the, grandmother. The maple. Exactly. Yeah, grandmother yeah, yeah. maple. And they've um, they've said that it's 550 years old. Wow. So I know there are older trees other places, but when you actually try to think of like 550 years ago or 600 years ago and imagine like where your ancestors were in the world or what's happening, you know, that's a long time ago. Um, I guess I'm wondering if there was a, a moment that you can take us to when you first became interested in sustainable forestry. I forget the, the term you used, but when you started to to wonder if there was a better way from whatever, I don't know, commercial forestry you're seeing. or When I was planting, I thought I was doing a good thing. Um, and, you know, like I was, I was an idealistic teenager, young adult. Um, thinking that I was like, you know, creating tomorrow's forest, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, my ideals were there, but my practices definitely weren't um, because essentially you're catering to, um, you're kind of catering to a different kind of industry that doesn't really promote um, retention of forest ecosystems. Um, Typically mass plantation style um, forestry requires... Uh, the mass removal of, of forest ecosystems, uh, potentially herbicide uh, applications to um, to get rid of uh, neighboring competition for the seedlings that you've just planted. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be a form of chemical weeding. Um, glyphosate or Roundup or whatever you want to call it is, is the predominant method. Um, so yeah, anyway, uh, fast forward to the ranger school. We, we, we started getting to understand different management types and management styles and and I think where my heart lied back 
in tree planting started to align with with my education so um that's that's kind of where i've got a hands-on exposure to um you know managing forests for different values managing forests for forests um you know managing forests for uh watersheds invertebrates soils um carbon climate microclimate uh and then and then to further that, stepping into my my old my old job at the federation, uh, which was quite political. Uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of my time lobbying bureaucrats and talking to to government, and and uh, I sat on the board for um, the Canadian Federation of, of of Woodlot Owners. So so we represented the small private sector across Canada, and we would always go to um, you know we'd go to Ottawa uh, to lobby. Uh, on behalf of, on behalf of small private landowners across the country, and and kind of consolidate their concerns, and and uh, which is kind of built around um, both their you know financial representation in the sector, but also um, kind of systems driven by um, ecosystem based concerns. Yeah, so yeah, I I'd say like a specific moment um, probably be the ranger school. Yeah, where I, where I learned that forests could be managed and in a multitude of different ways hmm. uh, for a, and produce a multitude of, of different products, serve different different markets and, and different, uh, you know. I think that's neat to know that you were being taught useful things from like different perspectives, including an ecological perspective at the forestry school, because I had got the idea that some other forestry programs aren't necessarily giving a, a holistic view of things. You no, might no, not want to comment on that, but... No, I'm happy to comment on that. Um, you know, uh, there's there's obvious industry support uh, with any educational institution that supports potential newcomers to the to the forest industry, mm. um, and and all that was also amazing education. You know, learning how harvesting works. A lot of people in the world of forest management look at at uh, harvesting systems and and groups of harvesting machines. You know, they they look at those machines and, and they'll see them and, and kind of panic and be like, what's happening to our forest? But if you use them correctly or if you use them um, in a more, uh, you know, low-impact um, ecological way, um, you know, they can be your friend. But anyway, all that to say, yeah, you know, the Ranger School does support industry for sure, but it also, it, it does offer a, uh, a, you know, holistic view of, of ecosystem management and natural resource management, and um, and I'm sure the NRET program here. Um, the what? The what program is uh, it? The NRET uh, Natural Resource and Environmental Technician Program. I think it just recently got recognized um, by the Canadian Institute of Forestry. I guess maybe just more generally, I'll ask you to comment. Like so far on shared ground, when we've been discussing forestry, it's usually been in regards to crown land, and so. Just in whatever way you want to, maybe you could just take us more into the world of um, forestry on private land. Sure. Um, so yeah, as as I said before, um, you know, you look at a forest. You when 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 you start managing or when you start cruising a forest, I should say, um, you look at the landscape. You look at previous treatments. You look at soil types, ecocytes, and whatnot. Get as much information as you can, and then you go do the boots on the ground work to get basically forest inventory data. Um, and then you're able to kind of make a well-rounded um, series of 
decisions for or recommendations for a landowner that might have, you know, any set of values. Um, you know, by the way, there's about thirty-two or thirty-three thousand or so landowners in the province. Okay. Um, so, trying to consolidate that voice is was always a bit difficult because, you know, it's forestry is a very political, politically charged uh, industry or mm-hmm. sector, I should say. Um, but yeah, so when um, typically what you'd do is you'd meet a landowner. Landowner would 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 tell you their their values could be um, I want to manage a small amount of my woodlot. I have two hundred hectares. Uh, you know I, I'm not this this is a secondary income of mine. Uh, I'm retiring soon. I'm not I'm not looking to to break the bank. I'm not looking to liquidate. I'm looking to pass this on to my children. Um, I still need uh, firewood for my wood stove to heat my house. Um, you know, I might have a, a small scale sugar bush, uh, in the back, you know, I want to manage for that. So you look at access, you look at, at, at what roads need to be built. And if, if roads need to be built, because sometimes people, you know, shy away from wanting too many road systems because it's, it's a, you know, one of the biggest disturbances to biodiversity and, and, and macro fauna, uh, in forestry, uh, would be road, road building. To speak a little further on this point, I wanted to tie this into the Save Our Old Forests campaign, which you are probably familiar with. Shared Ground has a few past episodes about it. And there is a music festival coming up in August called Soofstock, which should be a fun celebration and good fundraising event, hopefully, for them. The Save Our Old Forests campaign seems to be gaining a lot of public support, I think because the requests of the petition are so reasonable and simple. In relation to the government's commitment to protecting 20% of forests by 2030, the petition asks that forests over 80 years of age are no longer cut until the government identifies the forests that will make up the 20% protected areas. The campaign also asks for a moratorium on new road building in these older forests for exactly the reasons Pat just mentioned that road building is one of the biggest disturbances to biodiversity and animals such as moose. Next in the conversation with Pat, I ask him to tell us about the Nova Scotia Working Woodlands Trust. The NSWWT holds a vision of long-term woodland stewardship and through working forest easements will allow private landowners to protect their forested land into the future while still interacting with it for ecological harvesting and various human uses. One of the reasons I was excited to talk with Pat was to hear more about this form of land protection and this upcoming opportunity for our region. I sit on the board for for the Working Woodlands Trust, NSWWT is the acronym. There's a lot of acronyms in the world. Yeah, that's a hard one to remember, actually, (laughs) I find. Um, To me, it it, it kind of serves as um, the only source of private land regulation in the province. Given the level of engagement that we're seeing, is it's kind of inspiring um, because what it's it's built to enable landowners and uh, and the organization to do is to be able to lock certain parcels of land uh, into an into a working easement that's basically um, under a rotating management plan. Like okay, so let's plan. let's just pause for a sec. So so 
we're we're familiar with easements in the form of conservation easements. Mm-hmm. So if someone wanted to put one of those on their lands, then it'll be protected in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. So a working forest easement is similar in a way, except so so it's conserved because you're only allowed to do certain types of forestry, but you can still do forestry. Is that basically what that is? Yeah, more or less. So so again, uh, you know, the concept of working in the forest for the forest or, or practicing rest, restorative forestry um, is all uh, kind of promoted uh, and uh, encouraged through a working easement. So basically, uh, all the things that come with a conservation easement, uh, the tax breaks, if you donate, the, well, I guess that, that and then the protection of, of an ecosystem um, would, would happen. Uh, under a working easement, there would just be um, low impact, infrequent interventions um, to still allow landowners to draw an income from. Uh, and you know, it's not, it's 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 never anything overly significant, and and uh, the treatment is going to to benefit the forest in the long term. So it's always managing forests for. Um, you know, long-lived, in intermediate to tolerant shade, climate-adaptive, um, climax species of the Acadian Wabanaki forest, and 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 also with the potential of of, of um, you know cashing in and, and and on on carbon credits and um, you know helping create uh, the carbon economy that's starting to to gain some traction here in mm-hmm. in the province and and also in North America. Um, yeah. So you can be protecting your land and still making a bit of income from it, still getting some extra tax breaks and the new carbon credits that are coming in but aren't aren't um, available to just the average person, right? Right. Without um, being part of a program, probably. Well, it would depend on the carbon broker, Okay, honestly. maybe I shouldn't get into this. Yeah, that, that's, that's, a, that's too, a big rabbit that's hole. That's too... Okay, um, okay. But, but, so I think you already made the point. I, I just think the, yeah. the, the the working forest easements are really, really pretty cool because um, conservation easements, I guess, can be great too. But I, I just like the idea that people can still be viewed as part of the forest and still able to do things in it that, you know, maybe like heat their own homes with cutting their own wood or whatever, like other things that they're still able to do, including creating some income. Totally. Yeah. No, what I really like about it is, is the concept of perpetuity. So if you have the right people making the right decisions uh, on the woodlot that is being uh, held under easement Mm -hmm. for perpetuity, then that is serving as literally the only form of, of of private land regulation in the province yeah. like there of course there's right. federal laws in place around species at risk and wet areas and 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 things like that but but in terms of you know there there is a a, a, a large opinion out there of you can't tell me what to do on my property and i'm going to treat it how i want and but uh you know placing a parcel of land under a working easement is is kind of a recognition of I can't do whatever I want on my on this piece of land that I happen to be on, but I can do something, and I'm going to do my best to make it kind of mutually beneficial, mm. and that's going to happen forever. So um, you know, it, it it sounds a bit romantic in that way, but and you know, of course, when something's placed under an easement and under working a series of working management plans, then it's subject to 
tax breaks associated with intergenerational tax transfers. So if you want to give it to your kids or your grandkids, then family-owned good forestry can can kind of perpetuate. Um, so it doesn't matter if you've if you sell the woodlot or if you sell or if you give your woodlot to your kid, the easement's there. It's tied to the deed, not the person. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 really unique, and and there are some working woodland trusts. Um, and I know the the former director there. She went down to to kind of get a sense in the United States of some working woodlands trusts um, before she started this one up. Mary Jane Roger, I'm sure you've heard her name. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Um, so, yeah. so they're they're not very common across North America. No. Is that what you're saying? No, no, ah, no. so this is a really conservation in- easements and nature trusts are mm-hmm. are kind of all the rage in North America. Okay, yeah, well, that's really neat to know. And and um, I know it's fairly new here, but I. D- I guess I got the idea it was somewhat unique, but I didn't realize it was that that much of an innovative mm-hmm. step for the province. And who's able to take part in it now? Is it anybody who wants to? Um, there's a bit of a legislative barrier right now. Okay. Um, so right now, the I think the Nova Scotia Easements Act needs to be amended. Okay. So right now, the uh, in order to be able to get working easements uh, legislated in the province it needs to go through cabinet and uh it's been a bit of a lengthy process hmm. so whether or not the, you know the organization definitely exists the promotions there um the intent is there and all the all the right personnel to be able to carry out you know land acquisition land management making right decisions you know everything's in place and funding it's literally just, it's up to the province at this point. And uh, it's more or less just a paper on a desk that's waiting to be talked about and then waiting to be approved. Mm. Um, not that there's anything bad happening within the provincial government. It's literally just, it's just on the agenda and we're just waiting for um, eligible body status is, is, is essentially it. And then we can start carrying out, uh, you know, endowments and placing easements on land and uh, signing contracts and building building up a big enough um, land acquisition pool to be eligible for certain um, carbon markets that we want to access. So what kind of interest has there been in this so far? Loads. Yeah? Loads, yeah. Uh, A good chunk of of the private sector and the forestry sector at large know about it. Mills, um, we've engaged with industry on it. Um, Yeah. Okay. So what kind of interest has there been? I don't know if you can generalize, but has there been some interest from industry too? Well, uh, you can, I mean, like if you're putting some, if you're putting a piece of property under a working easement with limited, um, limited timber market potential, um, you know, I can't, I can't imagine there would be an overwhelming amount of, of industry support, Mm -hmm. um, just because, they're more in the business of gathering timber, manufacturing lumber, and selling it to retailers and, and generating money, creating jobs, continuing the wood supply, growing the economy, blah, blah, blah. Um, but all that to say, the uh, the body of, of, of people that would be interested in something like this don't really pose any threat to industry. So I, I almost think it's it's to their benefit to, to support an initiative like this. Because the the you know the the amount of work that would be done on these properties would would still potentially uh, result in truckloads of timber going to to mills. So supporting 
supporting that industry in some way, okay. um, but but ne- but never in a large way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's it. That's a really interesting thing to think about because, again, yeah, they don't po- pose any threat, but um, they're not going to get anything more, which is kind of funny. So, what kind of industry support might there be? Like, what? well, I mean, right uh, at, at various stages when you're applying for things, you're always trying to get letters of support, um, backing from lobbyist groups, and and um, you know, trying to talk to the right people within the bureaucracy and within, um, you know, Premier Houston's government. So, a- any anyone that has any pull with with the government. Um, cause the government also just wants to make the right decisions that, that keep people happy. So if industry's happy, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, that it, it makes for an easier decision with the government. We saw, uh, last year, uh, was it last year that the biodiversity act, that whole, yeah, or maybe the year before. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, we saw that, we saw that kind of get squashed by industry. I mean, you can't, you can't really say that it was a hundred percent that piece of legislation was 100% squashed by an industry lobby group but you know they 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 do represent a large voice that has a lot of power and supplies a lot of jobs so um, being able to keep industry happy uh, and and being able to play ball with them is it's always important Hmm. Uh, industry is going to exist whether people like it or not and I think to have a good relationship with them is 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 better than having a bad one yeah well that makes sense yeah so, um, so what other innovative things are happening in this province, would you say? What other innovative things are happening? Um, yeah, or things that you're excited about or, or um, I don't know, that people might, might not have heard of or might like to know more about. Sure. Well, um, I, don't know, I don't know if this has been talked about in previous podcasts, but, you know, backtrack to December 20th, 20, 2019, uh, when Premier McNeil at the time, um, he announced that Northern Pulp wasn't going to be re- reopening. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a transition team was put in place um, to dish out a pool of funding to uh, to the forest sector, to innovative ideas. It's called FIT, the Forestry Innovation Transition Team. So they had a pool of about $50 million, which is in, in the grand scheme of things doesn't go very, doesn't go an overly large way, uh, especially when you're talking about a mill that, you know, is now being considered to be $300 million to get up and running again. Uh, so $50 million is a bit of a drop in the bucket in this mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. But all that to say, there's, there's, there is a, you know, more or less a, a widely recognized need to transition into a more um, balanced approach to how we manage the forest. And that was kind of highlighted. It was kind of everyday implied by a lot of people, but highlighted by a man named William Leahy. Um, he's the president of King's College. So Bill Leahy uh, created the Leahy Report, or what people called uh, an independent review of Nova Scotia forest practice. So stemming from the FIT funding, there's been uh, there's been a lot of other cool initiatives. I know that the, the Nova Scotia Community College, um, uh, you know, they got a pool of money to, to be able to, to, dish, to dish out uh, small grants to people to like startups or um, indigenous or First Nations identifying peoples or groups of communities to um, you know create projects that both help innovate and stabilize the forest industry um, or the forest sector. I know that um, 
It's the forest innovation voucher program, forest, not forestry. So they want to cater to, you know, they want to cast a wide net and cater to all all walks of, of life and people that work in the forest and, and see the forest for a multitude of different um, values and, and uh, functions. So that, that'd be one, one, one thing that, uh, that's come from, um, from the pulp mill closing down, I guess. Uh, there has been a lot of, um, you know, I know the, the province did commit to small scale wood energy, wood heat boilers um, to certain provincial buildings across the province, which is, it is happening a bit slower than uh, it should. But, uh, you know, I know uh, one of the, one of the NSCC campuses in Bridgewater in the town hall and the courthouse there, that's, that's now heated by local um, wood chips that uh, are being supplied by a local forestry nonprofit, Forest Cooperative, the Western Woodlot Western Woodlot Cooperative Service. Um, so they're supplying, you know, five or seven hundred tons a year, which is really nothing, and displacing a lot of of, of carbon dioxide and um, okay, fossil so fuels. I know you're getting somewhere else here, but I have two questions now that have come from this. Sure. So when you say uh, wood heat from wood chips, I guess I'm wondering, like, is it direct heat from the wood? It's not biomass for electricity. To me, um, there's good biomass and there's bad biomass. Okay. Biomass always comes with a stigma. Yeah, so in the province, there's there's two big facilities. Uh, one, one in uh, Point Tupper, that just burns wood chips for electricity. One down here, in our end of the province in Brooklyn, that just burns wood chips for, for electricity. Um, in terms of the uh, efficiency of, when you think of the ratio of energy that... Uh, of energy output versus energy actually taken on grid, mm-hmm. it's you know it's about thirty three percent efficient. But if you if you burn wood chips uh, in a boiler in a closed system that uh, heats water and and uh, hot water goes underground through uh, and connected to a, a grid of different buildings that goes through air exchangers and provides heat, right? Okay. Uh, which is you know, over 80% of the actual energy demand of of this province and at least the rest of this country, because we're a northern country, um, and it, then it's, you know, it, it can be upwards of 90% efficient. Okay. Um, so the distinction is burning wood t- to turn it into electricity or burning wood to use it more directly as heat. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and yeah. I, I, should, I should make one other crucial distinction. Um, when you manage a woodlot, um, you know, there's there's wood that can go to a sawmill and there's wood that can go to nowhere or a pulp mill um, or just stay in the woods. Um, and in, able, uh, in order to be able to afford to do good forestry, you kind of have to find a, a place to put all your commercially viable wood. Um, and, and low-grade wood fiber doesn't really have a home here. Uh, there's no... Uh, there's no pulp market, uh, and there's no real um, there's no real source or or place to put um, low grade wood fiber that can't be turned into constructor grade lumber. Um, and even if you you know if if you're practicing stand improvement forestry, you're still going to be like you don't want to be cutting the best trees all the time because then you're high grading and you're just leaving low quality trees that might not serve as the best 
you know, contributor to the ecosystem. Um, so you, you're kind of pulling out of a, a bunch of different wood, more or less, and some of it needs to find a home. Uh, otherwise, it's just going to be staying in the woods. Yeah, so like if you're just if you're practicing stand improvement forestry, you're still going to be pulling out wood that that can't go to a stud mill or isn't saw log material, um, and and you know so it, it would just get chipped on site and tried to and a home would it would need you call it a forest residue, basically. Okay. Um, a mill residue is a forest residue. It's just a res. It's just chipped at a mill instead of chipped uh, on the roadside of a of a woodlot, and um, yeah. You know, if if that place has a home, then you're creating a local energy market that um, doesn't, um, you know, kind of cater to uh, offshore oil and gas fluctuations. Um, it's displacing fossil fuels that are coming from countries that we don't really have any control over the extraction, environmental or labor labor laws over and. Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of good things that can come from it. It just has to be done right. And, and, and predominantly, it hasn't been done right. Right. Okay. So, so some or much of the current wood chip for biomass heating, like we don't know where it's coming from. It could also be coming from clear cutting, I guess. Exactly. So that, that's, the, that's the thing that you want to avoid, mm-hmm. essentially. So mm-hmm. if, if, if there were... Um, if there were procurement policies associated with um, sourcing your fuel for a, a district heating, you know, wood energy facility, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's great. Okay. Not to say that that's, that's going to solve everything. We still need wind. We still need solar. We still need every form of, of renewable energy we can. But I think being able to um, utilize a, a waste product of the forest that would otherwise um, not be utilized. You know, it, it, it provides some income and it helps supplement the cost of harvests. It does keep jobs going and, and it creates local energy markets. And when you say waste product, I can't help but think it's not a waste to the forest itself. Like, how do you balance what is more useful ecologically versus what is more useful, like, for less money but still some money? Sure. Um, I mean, like cutting. Yeah, that's a tricky question. It's um, so cutting, cutting. You don't want to be cutting trees for the sake of of being able to uh, heat a school. You, if you're cutting, if you're cutting a tree, and most of it can go to a stud mill, but then uh, the stud mill only takes five inch tops. Okay. Uh, and you still have. 12 feet of that tree that could that could go somewhere but because a stud mill can't take can't take it because it's a small diameter it could get chipped and it could go into a boiler otherwise it's just a delimbed log that just sits on the forest floor mm-hmm. um, potentially rots potentially creates methane uh, which is a worse greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide um what about what about the nutrients it's giving back to the forest? That that's that that's an undeniable thing. Of course, it's it's giving it is giving a lot of nutrients back. The idea of of sourcing uh, wood chips from stand improvement forestry is that you're still maintaining a healthy nutrient balance. Um, that uh, it might not necessarily need it. So, like if you if you're still if you're still keeping the forest floor shaded. Um, 
where you know where overstory removals are basically uh, exposing the forest floor to too much sunlight, mycelium and and uh, and and different fungal communities are all, all all burning up because they're not used to that level of UV exposure. Um, you know, you don't have to worry about any of that when you're practicing stand improvement forestry. So, okay. uh, you know, the odd treetop or 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 a small tree that um, that could be utilized and and profited from. Uh, you know, there's there's a, be- a bit of a balancing act, as there right. always is with stand right. improvement forestry. Okay, so this is yeah. obviously all all in the context of responsible forestry to it's, start with. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. That's that's really interesting because, yeah, a lot of this is actually I think you know a lot of I think a lot of Nova Scotians really care about what's happening to our forests, and it isn't um, necessarily an easy thing to understand if you are not a forester, if you haven't, you know, spent some time studying all these things. And it is easy to think, oh, this thing is bad and this thing is good, and it's hardly ever that simple, I guess. But it is, um, yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. Like the the biggest, you know, like when I was at the federation, the biggest thing that I wanted to address outside of wanting to meet the needs of the private landowner base mm-hmm. um, was was basically just trying to connect um, those who were passionate about natural resource management, but that that might not. Um, necessarily have a well-rounded understanding of it Um, and also connecting an urban population that was very passionate about it Mm. Um, you know you have you have a lot of ENGOs there that have a lot of influence and do a lot of good for for the environment and for the climate Um, but they're also uh, you know they're also serving a large voter base that's that's predominantly urban that doesn't have a lot of exposure um, to to responsible forest management um, so yeah, you know, one of kind of what I talked about at the beginning of, of the podcast, um, about the, you know, the shock factor of seeing a machine in the woods. Um, you know, all, a lot of people could drive past a selection harvest, mm-hmm. um, you know, after it's done and not even know that there's a machine in there. Uh, okay. Um, so, so there's, and, and, you know, they, they would think that it's just this beautiful, um, Old forest, forest even. you know, yeah. so it's, uh. There's a huge disconnect that that um, that needs to be addressed um, to both kind of heal that view of forestry in both a political way and kind of you know from an ecosystem standpoint as well. But uh, but yeah, you know humans are here and 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 we do need wood product for um, for various things and and there's 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 more to forests have more to offer than just wood product and paper product and and maple syrup and um food and you know there's there's a spiritual connection that that a lot of people and a lot of people that have been working in the forest for generations have that uh, a lot of people that that uh that might not have that exposure could benefit from hmm. so there's there's a huge connective piece there that I, i'd love to for someone to tackle anyway um so it sounds like one of the misconceptions you'd like people not to have is that um, just because there's big machinery, it means that the the forestry practiced is is harmful forestry. Is that right? Yeah. Are are there other things that you think that the average person who cares, for instance, might, um, yeah, might have the wrong idea about that you'd like to set their record on? I mean, yeah. I mean, the wood energy thing would be would definitely be an important one. Um, I, I I do think that um, you know. W- as as people, we are uh, very focused on on food sovereignty, and 
which is important. You know, we, we, we do want to focus on what we're eating and, and you know, the history of, of, of how that piece of food was grown or how that animal was grown. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of care that we think about that, but we don't really mm-hmm. care about um, what it takes to turn on a light or what it takes to uh, heat a home. Um, and I think uh, being able to take responsibility for that on our own soils is, is a big is a big thing, you know. Um, we we have both the curse and the luxury of 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 saying that like our resources are aren't aren't happening in our backyard. Yeah. Um, our energy is coming from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I guess I guess the the not in my backyard mentality is kind of limiting us from being able to understand and and connect to 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 forest management, and natural resource management on the whole, um, because you can you know i know i know i know forest management companies that that literally um you know work for nature trusts and conservancy groups and and they provide stand improvement forestry and also provide to energy local energy markets hmm. and uh you know i don't think they i don't think politically they would align if they were on a talk radio but but they obviously sit at a table and agree on the decisions that are being made on their, on their woodlands. Hmm. Um, so there's there's a disconnect there, and I think that, I think that the world could benefit, or Nova Scotia could benefit from a bit more transparency. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes me wonder what, um, yeah, what those of us who want to make the right consumer choices, maybe as far as like heating our homes or buying our firewood or whatever else, we have some individual power over. Um, what 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 can we do? And you mentioned earlier FSC, which I always thought was a fairly important certification. And I know the the other there's another one like a kind of competitor certification now that I gather is a really watered down version of it. Um, I forget SFI. the letters SFI. Yeah. So, but but you said something about um, FSC earlier that made it sound like you know you would just be supporting international so i'm just wondering like how, how do you yeah as a consumer if you want to support some ethical forestry but you want to support local forestry is fsc a good certification to look for or or what other things might you suggest for people fsc is is a great start um it's a gr- it's a great platform to build on because it is dictating i wouldn't say the bare minimum but it is it is off. It's kind of the ground level of private land regulation of saying like, "Hey, like these are just absolute no goes." But uh, if you did want to practice genuine stand improvement, um, you know, restorative forestry, you might have to go above and beyond uh, what is demanded of FSC. Mm. Um, FSC is, but you know, I can't. You know, you can't really speak poorly of a certificate of a certification process that uh, is was was founded hopefully on the um, on the premise of of sustainable resource management um, but yeah SFI was more of an industry competitor um, I know there's 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 only one mill in the province that supports FSC certification and that's Port Hawkesbury paper oh, um, right. and it's because they do have and they have an international demand so they they still they still pay premiums um, for FSC product over non-certified product, which incentivizes landowners to to be a part of the program and and uh, understand, um, you know, the demands of 
of the Forest Stewardship Council. Um, you know, whether it whether it meets the the grade of the modern day forest justice warrior, I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. And what else can people do? That sounds confusing. So don't buy. <laughs> yeah. Well I, <laughs> well, I guess it would be a clear choice between FSC. I say between and FSC SFI. and SFI. Sure, go FSC. Okay. Uh, I just I'm just not a spokes. Yeah. I'm not a spokesperson for FSC or SFI. I just okay. know that uh, they're both they're both kind of easy targets to meet. Um, FSC is just a bit more rigorous. The standards are a bit more uh, demanding. Um, it, it has been here in the province for for quite a while, and I think it came in, in the early 2000s, and there's close to 100,000 hectares of, of land under FSC management. Um, the Federation had 40,000, I think, uh, of small private, there's probably 75,000, and then of industrial freehold, there's probably another 10,000 or so, so maybe 85,000 or 90,000 hectares mm-hmm. of certified land. Um, okay. Well, maybe this has to be its own episode too at some point because then there's also the question of like when to get good certified whatever the wood product is versus like post-consumer recycled versus other recycled and like if you're talking about paper, I guess that 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 seems like it's its own thing that could use some clarification at some point. So, totally. So so we can move on from this now. I, I, like I, well, I mean, if I, I will speak to this. Okay. Um, if FSC, if FSC certified wood product had a place on on a shelf, um, and and was marked up, then it might uh, it might promote better land management. It might get more consumer buy-in. Uh, you know, like there is an organic section in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. There's no FSC section in a lumberyard. Right. And and if there was. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it might. It. I already know that people would pay more for for certified product. Like we've already seen in the pandemic, when 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 construction grade lumber spiked, it, you know, the the cost of a two by four tripled. No one no one batted an eyelash. Like mm. people were building decks like crazy. Right. Like they you know, the world have, yeah. was out of wood. There's this yeah. big crisis. Um, you know, all that all that Nova Scotia or any retailer has to do is separate FSC lumber from from not and just ask the consumer, do you believe in in more sustainably harvested or or at least do you want to know where your wood product came from? Mm-hmm. Here's a barcode. You can scan it. It came from this wood lot. Here are the owners. Um, you know, like if wood had more of a story to tell mm-hmm. and the FSC FSC program could potentially do that but if wood had more of a story to tell there could be more consumer buy-in and that could be more of a you know united factor in this whole story of woodlot management and and wood supply and and whatnot mm-hmm. yeah and anything else for the the consumer I actually I don't want to yeah I don't really want to refer to just people you know buying things to live as consumers but like citizens who need to buy wood products or wood based (laughs) products are there any other things you would um, urge us to consider as far as our purchasing power I guess yeah I mean like if there's an option to buy local I'd always I'd always be a huge advocate for that Mm -hmm. Um, like doesn't matter if it's if it's if it's from a mill but uh you know, I I know for a fact that uh, there are some architecture firms in in the province that have sustainability standards where 
a certain amount of their building supplies have to be FSC certified, and they but they have to come from a retailer within a certain geographic distance. Mm. But it doesn't matter where the the retailer got the wood, so they could get FSC certified wood from British Columbia. Mm. Um, you know, like if 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 wood product came predominantly from here, then we might have a, a better shot at, at curbing um, curbing climate change and being able to. Um, you know, have a bit more of a transparent interaction with consumers and suppliers. So I've been learning more and more, as I'm sure lots of concerned people are about the climate trends for our region and what's happening with yeah climate change um, in relation to all sorts of things. But um, I gather that the climate trends are showing an increase in the likelihood of wildfires. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on what we can do in the way of forest management to minimize the danger and destruction from fires. Yeah, I mean, it's, this is a really funny one because uh, you 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 see industry saying like this is this is a reason why our forests need to be managed better, I or um, it there is a reason why our forests need to be managed better. But sometimes forest fires just happen. Um, us transitioning into more climate safe forestry i'm not sure is going to solve uh, a forest fire problem unless unless we get rid of ladder fuels softwoods uh somehow manage to not have uh dry forest floors um and uh you know people that are willing to toss their cigarette butts on clear cuts or um, you know, start brush fires in their backyards. Uh, climate change is a very real thing that's happening here. Um, we're seeing, you know, we just came out of, we just came out of a, uh, you know, bad bout of forest fires that, that, and one of which was the biggest one in, in the province's history. So we can't really, we can't really deny anything at this point. Uh, all I can say is that, um, Climate adaptive forestry, managing for longer lived species, um, maybe managing for for more natural fire breaks. Um, so, uh, if if that means that um, you know more deciduous uh, lines of deciduous trees that could potentially curb the spread of forest fires could happen. Uh, although once they're spreading in the understory, um, they can candle anywhere. Um, Honestly, it's that's a question for uh, a forest fire scientist and yes, not a and forester. Yes, I will be talking to yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I was but, just curious if you had thoughts on it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's honest. It's scary. It's you know, it's it, it's totally scary. Um, yeah. I and you you know, you think of BC, and I worked there for ages, and and uh, I've replanted, I've replanted forest fire um, sites that were forty year old plantations, uh, and and. Uh, you know, monoculturing does cater to, um, you know, it can cater to, to bad, um, bad, uh, conditions, I guess, you know, if you're, if you monoculture with, with softwoods, they'll self prune. You got a lot of needle beds on the ground. You've got softwood branches on the ground because they're self pruning and, and going up and chasing sunlight. And then not to mention, you just have easily burning trees, for miles because so, softwoods are typically more flammable than hardwoods, exactly right? yeah okay. hardwoods are wetter they're greener um okay so um 
All I can say is just be responsible when you're in the woods. Don't light fires uh, and and listen to the experts. Um, yeah, yeah, that was a really scary time in it, and and I was really you know started to think, oh no, is there going to be a direct um yeah like what what people are going to think needs to happen to stay safe? Is that going to kind of go against ecological? values and you know even for instance here like gardening in in a way that isn't like using chemicals or monoculture crops and trying to you know garden with more perennials over annuals and things like that and i've got cardboard and wood chips all over the (laughs) all over the place to like suppress the grass so it can grow crops and i started to think like ah is this just going to combust sometime soon and you know this isn't safe anyway yeah it's it's yeah it's a scary thing to think about and it would be a shame if people started doing things less ecologically because of the fear of fire, which would be reasonable, but then potentially cause more long-term problems if we all started doing things less ecologically for short-term safety. Anyway, I know that's a really big question, but that's something probably lots of us have been thinking a fair bit about oh, lately. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think everybody in the forestry world is kind of racking their brain at how they can do things better, um, you know, how they can how they can maintain, uh, you know, a healthy level of greenery on the, in the understory. Um, you know, you, you don't, nobody wants to, nobody wants to do wrong. Everyone, everyone does think that they're doing right, which is actually kind of the problem in the conversation of forest management. Um, so, um, you know, until that's, until that's properly addressed, um, there's, you know, there's always going to be something to talk about, which, might be good for your podcast, but might be bad for fires and forestry. Oh, man. Okay. Well, there's a strange bright side, I guess. <laughs> All right, Pat. Well, I guess the sun has pretty much gone down and we can hear the dog's teeth clashing as she tries to snap at the mosquitoes. And <laughs> we're probably getting some mosquito bite souvenirs. So maybe we'll wrap up. Is there any, any last thing you want to say or share? Or are you happy to? Well, no. Yeah, honestly, I'm just I'm, I'm happy to get the opportunity to speak to something that I really care about. Um, um, it's it's always an exciting thing working in the woods because it's kind of a never-ending opportunity to learn. Um, you know, we didn't really even speak to, um, you know, the indigenous side of things and and what you can learn. Um, because uh, I, I've I've had the pleasure of of working with with so many groups over over the last five years here in Nova Scotia, and and again, it's you know, it's a never-ending positive learning experience for me and and uh I'll, I'll always always strive to to make make good decisions and uh and and try to influence others to to do the same yeah well i'm glad there are people like you who are um, advocating for for um, healthier forests in, in conjunction with healthy human needs um yeah, and also there's certainly way more um, Mi'kmaq folks and other Indigenous folks who I know we could all learn a lot from. So, yeah, thanks for mentioning that, too. Of course. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. I trust you enjoyed hearing some of Pat Wiggins' knowledge and perspectives. He and I both thought there was much more we could have talked about so you can probably count on another future episode with Pat. If you'd like to find out more about the Nova Scotia Working Woodlands Trust and Working Easements, there's lots of great info on their website, including an informative introductory video. The link, as well as those to other things mentioned in this episode, is in the show notes. Just a little note regarding how you can help support shared ground. 
If you are able and want to consider supporting me, you can find a donate link on each of the episodes at the Shared Ground Captivate website, as well as at the bottom of the description of the podcast, where you will see a link to support the show. I'm just one person, and any little bit helps. Signing off for now, from the Knotweed Studio. Until next time, fellow humans. <laughs>